Over these past two weeks, we've explored a number of the wholesome qualities or capacities of heart and mind that are nurtured and that blossom through our practice. This evening we'll explore one of these qualities that Annie and I have mentioned a number of times. And the title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma-vihara, or in English, a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with clinging and attachment, and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. The uncondition- this unconditional quality or capacity of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning or the layers of conditioning that shut us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and kindness. And so beginning with an old story, an ancient story from uh, over 2,500 years ago. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. And this forest was adjacent to a village of strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during this rains retreat, and who also were very happy to keep the uh, monks' alms bowls filled during their three-month practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began practicing insight meditation. They began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings... The forest devas who uh, lived there became quite fearful of the monks and they felt quite put out of their home when they saw that, in fact, the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest dwellings, uh, forest dwelling beings, uh, began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights, and they began to emit uh, very distasteful odors, hoping that <laughs> this would make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks became quite terrified which broke their samadhi, which broke their concentration, and it, also, and it disrupted their mindfulness considerably. Some even considered, some even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying, and they related their tale, to which the Buddha responded. He said, My beloved monks, 
go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to the forest and again saying it was really impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it said it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teachings and the metta practice. Well, of course, out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed, we could say, with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to that same forest. And for a while, they continued to experience some degree of uh, fear and some degree of anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon enough, there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas uh, had previously been quite hostile toward the monks, their anger and their resentment just disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the Deva's experience, along with feelings of being connected, like with family. And the inclination arose for them to provide an environment of safety, to really protect the monks from the particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest, such as tigers and poisonous snakes. So they had this feeling come up to protect them so that the monks could practice their meditation in peace and safety. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and open-hearted practice through this practice of metta, it's said that the 500 monks at some point again began practicing samatha and vipassana meditation with metta as their base, metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all of them, every single one of them, became arahants during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, with a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for, that brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and is felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another person, or a group of beings, wishing oneself and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe, to be secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. 
They are, of course, important on one level. But within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, my experience of human kindness is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being. And then at some point, radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. Every one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. So, for example, just a very simple, ordinary experience that actually happens quite often in my life. A few days before this retreat began, I went into the local post office to pick up my mail. And I say this happens at least a couple of times a week. I'm so grateful for it. So I walked into the post office to pick up the mail, and someone very kindly opened the door for me and held the door open. And most often, I, in fact, almost always, I don't know who this person is. I hadn't really seen them before. And we look at each other, and there's a smile that passes between us. And I thank her, or thank him, and there's this feeling of a warm connection between us. Just that. This is unconditional kindness given freely. And every time it happens when I go in the post office, it touches my heart. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people that we know and with people that we're very close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a more overt, a much stronger energy than what I just described, that unconditional warmth of loving kindness. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds, we could say, that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it. We cultivate it and we give it out. Offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential 
and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give. It's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness giving, given freely is a choice, a very natural choice that others make that we make, and it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other three divine abidings. And these are compassion, Karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upekka in Pali. It's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities being a very essential ground of us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1996, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, Metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, it's often spoke of as non-ill will, the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body, mind, and heart, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So, no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing oneself in relationship to others, for instance. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often might we think maybe that the person sitting next to us or someone sitting on the other side of the room 
how often might we think that, well, maybe their practice is so much better than mine. Or maybe the comparing mind says, well, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. This felt judgment that we sometimes experience. They're better than me. Or, I'm no good. Or, I'm great. No sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that person over there, nodding and restless and moving around. I think something that all of us have experienced at times, both sides of this. Well, obviously, this isn't metta. We're actually creating a separation. Me, other. The heart and the mind are contracted. And if we really pay attention, it's quite uncomfortable. And so we mindful, mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too, these experiences too, are part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta. And also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we are identified with and attached to either in a positive or in a critical way as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those who we're maybe close to in our lives, those who are easy to care about, or those who maybe are useful to us, or amusing, or maybe pleasing to us. A heart-mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of the capacity of what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being, to be able to connect and to care for any being, all beings. And some words from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. He said, meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. And you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical. It's non-judgmental. Metta really has no interest in comparing or no interest in fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, inner sense of patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously.
as each of you are practicing here in the very specific ways that you are. Practicing maybe towards cultivating a concentrated clarity of attention. Cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you may also be working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and its healing aspects. As our capacity for metta grows and as it blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the body, and the heart begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him the question, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't really necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with, or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like or might even not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites, no favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. The most subtle and the most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional, meaning no conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart. This world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout our human history and up until this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world more peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been, or we could say is, increasingly unsettled, violent times, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger says this. She says, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. And then she says, There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it perfectly. 
Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, our words, and our actions spring from, if our motivations and our intentions spring from the heart of metta, the kama that's created will then be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives even in ways that we may never know. I'd like now to spend a few moments uh, exploring some of the expectations that we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course, our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that maybe we have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness, as unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. It's quite limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not at all romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, fear, hatred, anger in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with and call love. Or at least until we experience metta, what we've called love. There's a great power and a great strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many, many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through and let go of along the way of our practice, as we all know. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold reaping its most amazing and most freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. The story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were preparing to disperse for their various duties and their various responsibilities in other places. 
And I'd like to offer the slightly abridged version of the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove and Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rain's retreat at Savati and wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk approached the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monk's lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha, and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse that you gave twelve years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son when he was eighteen years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, is not present and may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whenever people throw clean things, whether people throw clean things, clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. Yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will, a monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. And even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing 
hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without agonizing, without apologizing or agonizing. <laughs> Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with the heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness may hit a fellow monk and go on with apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving-kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I so foolish, I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded to this monk. He said, Truly, monk, you have committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then he turned to the Venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this, forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And the Buddha responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this reverend monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, so may he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, really a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this often in the smallest children. A number of years ago when I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, and I was giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and she purred it in my mouth with a very a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago I read a book <clears throat> that was about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in <coughs> East Texas 
and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help to support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until, at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. And it's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and to survive in it. So I'd like to read just a little bit of this book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, and these are his words, doing just fine. Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can take take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart, a mind, steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue just a little bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South, growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually, this book begins when George was eight years old, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking now. She didn't see me from the shadow of the trees, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for for some dogs, and then another that she set up on the shelf above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't really such a surprise in that. 
People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But, but what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. So I set the bowl back on the shelf, and being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal and I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood just what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, That's right. I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of ourself. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. And in closing the talk this evening, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. This is a true story. It comes from a book called On the Res. Swan was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Swan's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother 
Her daughters always had to be in the house or the yard by the time the street lights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were completely out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until her other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Coach teacher and coach who was also a good friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports, and at one time or another they did all of them. Cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, and basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And so she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, with her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. So, for variety, she would shoot layup shots against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and eventually had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, and the host gym will be dense with hostility and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team was waiting in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann 
offered quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump bar- ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All of that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Then Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. And a a short poem by Hafiz that he calls The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this the tremendous fullness of energy, called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because of the power Behind, because the power behind his words were born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. Do what seems to come naturally. And then maybe after the fact, Realize that you handle the situation very differently from the way that you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural, 
It's no big deal, you might say to a friend who maybe asks you how you were able to stay so present and do what needed to be done so easily. But it is a big deal. Because the natural expression of these qualities of heart and mind change your life and change the lives of everyone that you encounter. In closing the talk this evening with a poem by Mary Oliver. It's part of a poem by Mary Oliver. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. There'll be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or another. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older and cherishing what I have learned. I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.